the phrase I use is moronic logic. everyone. Welcome to Presenting Alfred Hitchcock. This is episode one, The Pleasure Garden. I'm one of your hosts, Kenny. With me as always is Sam and Lance. This week officially kicks off the Hitchcock Challenge, where we will be watching every single movie Alfred Hitchcock directed in chronological order, and then meeting right back here after each movie to discuss them in ridiculously long videos. Each video will also contain a spoiler-free synopsis from either Sam or Lance, just in case you're on the fence about watching the movie. Lance, Pleasure Garden, go. Okay. The Pleasure Garden follows the adventures of two young women as their lives become intertwined in a London theater and then diverge, taking them on two very different journeys. The story centers on Patsy and Jill, two chorus girls who dance at the eponymous Pleasure Garden Theater. We begin with Jill, newly arrived in London from the country, entering the Pleasure Garden to seek a job as a dancer. She tries to deliver a letter of introduction to the theater manager, the cigar-smoking Mr. Hamilton, only to discover that the letter and all of her money have been pilfered by two shady-looking guys standing outside the theater. As Jill fends off the advances of two other men in the theater, she's befriended by Patsy, a dancer who offers to take her in and let her stay with her. At Patsy's home, we're introduced to her parents, and more importantly, cuddles her rowdy puppy. As the two women get ready for bed, Jill shows Patsy a picture of her, her fiance, Hugh, who we learn is about to begin a two-year stint overseas with the company at a place known only as the Plantation. The next day, Patsy takes Jill back to the Pleasure Garden, where Jill convinces a skeptical Mr. Hamilton to give her an audition. Jill kills it and is offered a job on the spot, beginning her rise to fame. Soon, Jill's fiance Hugh shows up in London for a visit before departing to the plantation along with his boss, Mr. Levitt. And so begin the romantic entanglements involving Jill, Patsy, Hugh, Mr. Levitt, and of course, Prince Ivan, a fan of Jill, who begins courting her as her star rises. The Pleasure Garden is ultimately a, a romantic adventure set in different exotic locations involving the classic themes of love, friendship, betrayal, and even murder. All right, uh, one small correction though. Wasn't Prince Ivan going after Jill, not Patsy? A fan, hold on, put a fan of Patsy's. We can do an, uh, do an edit and I can we just- We can do a line. wild of just that line and we can splice it in. Yep, you wanna do that? <laughs> just say Jill and then I'll put that over where you say Patsy. <laughs> <laughs> and my lips, yeah. And, and you just can say Jill on. like five different ways and then you can use the one that's most appropriate. Jill, Jill, Jill. Okay. Good, but natural, more natural. <laughs> right, cut that out. All right. So uh, before we get started, uh, we usually tell everyone how to watch these movies. And The Pleasure Garden is, unfortunately, to start with, not available anywhere uh, in the United States. If you simply must own a digital version of this and have a multi-region DVD player, Brenton Film recommends this version from Network UK. So the version 
I watched started with a screen that said a Rohauer film collection release. So I looked him up and uh, yeah, there's some drama related to how we should think of the bootleg films that we're watching. So some quick backstory on this guy. He ran a theater in California named The Coronet in the early 50s. It was run as a private film club because at the time it was illegal to show films containing nudity in the United States. And I mean any nudity at all. We're not just talking about pornos. Uh, because he was considered a non-commercial theater, he became known for showing exploitation films, rare European films, but mostly he was known for being one of the only theaters in the 1950s that was playing the early silent films. He had this great racket where for the most part, he would borrow the silent films from the Museum of Modern Art uh, and uh, for reasons that I did not look into, a lot of these silent films were in the public domain back then. So Rohauer realized that if he cut the films up, switched out the titles and cards, and in some cases making edits just based on his personal likes and dislikes, he could then claim ownership of the movie and ban anyone else from showing it. Uh, a lot of times the movies would have the MoMA like watermark on them, the ones he would actually show and claim that he owned. But getting back to the Pleasure Garden, almost every available bootleg that any of us have watched is likely made from a Rohauer cut, meaning the title screens are all suspect and should not be considered as having anything to do with Alfred Hitchcock, which is unfortunate because Alfred Hitchcock started out as a designer of these type of cards. So it would have been interesting to see them. All right, Alfred Hitchcock was a, uh, a really cool guy. <laughs> he, uh, his parents were uh, really um, strange people. There was this anecdote he used to tell when he was, um, you know, after he became famous, that his mom um, once reported him to the police and uh, had him. What, 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 what did he do again? You guys help me out on that. Do you like stole something from his? I don't think they said how. I think his dad uh, had just given him a note. Uh, and sent him, according to his story, he was like five and just sent him to the police. And then he didn't read the note and the note. He, he was had... a naughty, he did something bad. And yeah. his dad, it was his dad, not his mom. Pardon me. So his dad sent him to the, the police station with a note that said, you know, lock me up for the night. Um, and he credited that. Well, it's it's one of those like two perfect stories as part of the Hitchcock mythology. And there were a lot of those, um, but, it was, but it was great. And, you know, and he credited that for his lifelong suspicion of, um, authority figures. Um, he had the classic sort of like sympathetic mother, distant and uh, kind of domineering father, um, which if you want to get Freudian about, I'm sure there's a lot we could uh, get into with that. But anyway, uh, Alfred Hitchcock was a director, as I've learned. Um, he also uh, was an engineering student. A lot of people in his station in life would have had a sort of a tendency to go into a more practical field. So the, the telegraph was a new invention at this time. He studied it and um, because of his sort of leaning, his proclivities, his, uh, his talents in art, he, he sort of moved over to the commercial side of that business and started working in their advertising. Um, and then through a, a series of scrapes and dodges, he managed to find his way into uh, film production where he was 
first an art director and uh, a, a card a title card designer and um, managed to do that while kind of absorbing everything he could about about um, international cinema because British films at that at that time were not as sophisticated as German or American films, primarily in lighting. And I think he he learned a lot um, in this formative period of uh, you know how to separate subject from background with lighting techniques, which were kind of new in Hollywood. And you know Fritz Lang, which we've had the disclaimer, none of us know that much about movies, but just as a layperson watching Fritz Lang movies, the, how striking the lighting it is and how, how um, dramatic the contrasts are. You could tell that that was something that Hitchcock picked up on. Um, so he, these early movies where he was director, critics at the time I've read were also really impressed. He was, he was considered to be like the man with the, the man with the mastermind was a early um, sort of epithet. Is that the right word? That was attached to him uh, or he was tagged with. And I think that probably maybe put him on the course to this like self mythologizing that he later became a, a master of where he kind of created, it was almost like a brand, you know, the Hitchcock film. He was credited uh, in every film on the poster before the title of the film, you would know it was a Hitchcock movie. Yeah, you can definitely see the stamp of, he, he begins in this first movie, you, you see a few of those Hitchcock um, traits, uh, you know, manifest, but it definitely feels like a product of a, of a studio. It feels like a crowd pleasing kind of movie, um, you know, for that era. Uh, it doesn't necessarily feel like a Hitchcock film. Yeah, it, it, a lot of these films, the truth is a lot of these films are adaptations of popular books at the time. So that the Pleasure Garden is based on a book by Oliver Sandys, uh, and this is stolen from Wikipedia. Oliver Sandys was a pseudonym for Marguerite Florence Laura Jarvis, a British writer, screenwriter, and actress. She's a best-selling author of her era. She wrote 38 novels as Oliver Sandys, including six films and 21 she wrote as Countess Barsinska. Five of those were films. The Pleasure Garden, the novel, is long out of print and very difficult to find in hard copy on Amazon or eBay, uh, if you can find it at all. Your best option, if you really want to read this, is to find it online at the Internet Archive, which has a bunch of free public domain books that you can read there. I wanted to talk about the soundtrack with you guys now, because I think all of the soundtracks for this movie were done by a guy named Lee Irwin, uh, in 1981, who was hired by Raymond Rohauer. And uh, I didn't find any other ones besides his and the videos I looked at, but uh, so it might be the only one. There could be other ones. You can correct me if I'm wrong in the comments, but uh, just a quick thing on Lee Irwin. He was a theater organist and composer that was a stickler for history and scored over 70 silent films. But one interesting thing that I did find out about him just yesterday on IMDb, is that when Lee Irwin was in high school in the 1920s, he actually substituted for a regular organist at two silent era theaters. So this guy was as authentic a composer as you can really get because he actually played while these movies played, uh, which is kind of cool. Uh, in talking about the technical, the only other couple of things I wanted to kind of touch on here was uh, just some of the names and the credits. I like to look at them and kind of look them up and just see if there's anything interesting to 
look at or people that work with Hitchcock more than once are kind of interesting. Elliot Stenard is listed as the screenwriter here. Uh, so he- Did you ever figure out if that's Stannard or Stenard? Not, not, besides being not experts, I am not good at pronouncing names. So it could, I keep saying Rohauer too. I don't know if that's the right way. I, I knew someone with the last name Stannard and they said Stannard. Or I'm going to call him Elliot Stannard from now on then. But he is the screenwriter. Uh, he was the screenwriter for eight of Hitchcock's 10 silent films. And uh, he wrote 88 screenplays in a 15 year period. So this guy's like a major workhorse, but I don't know what a, a silent film script would look like because you, you don't have dialogue. So he's just taking the movie and maybe making scenes out of it. Or I, it'd be interesting to take a look at what the actual script is. Well, so that, that brings up an interesting point too, because you do see a, a, you know, a, a lot of lip reading you know, or I have to do a lot of lip reading in these in these uh, films, and um, uh, and and it does look like they are frequently speaking dialogue. Um, you know, in addition to gestures and emoting. So even though the dialogue doesn't necessarily appear on uh, on the title cards, there they are there is dialogue. They are talking. Hmm. I don't know if they're ad living or not. I don't know, but um, you know, there's definitely dialogue that just doesn't get passed in, into the and you're sort of uh, somehow the audience is able to sort of get the message of, of what's being communicated. Uh, the other name on this list that we should probably talk about a little bit is Alma Reville, who is credited as the assistant director on uh, The Pleasure Garden. Uh, she's also, you could probably consider a collaborator on every single Alfred Hitchcock movie uh, in that she marries him soon after this movie. I think they started dating during the pleasure garden. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I think so. They, they, they had a pretty swift courtship too. They, they married by the time they were doing, uh, was it downhill? Were they married to Mountain Eagle? Was that? Oh, really? Mountain Eagle. That was the one. Yeah, that was the one. All right. So this is where they started the romance. Alma Reville. All I know is she, I think she was more established at the studio than Hitchcock was when he came in and became director. I think she was doing a lot more. And then, you know, he got the directing gig and a romance started there. Yeah, from, from what I've read, it sounds like she played a huge part in a lot of his movies from the beginning, that they would plan out a lot of the, the visuals together, which was uh, part of what makes his early movies so good is, um, is how visual they are. And working with the limitations of a, a silent film, you could see like that, that was a skill they really felt like, or a, a technique that they leaned on a lot um, for a lot of the storytelling. So they would, um, they would work together and plan out shots together. And uh, she was very involved in the early days as uh, not just like scriptwriter or, you know, someone to consult on scripts, but uh, as an editor, she had a lot to say as well. Um, art director and just visual, you know, accomplice. All right, my last note on just technical is just talking about the cast a little bit. Uh, the film was made in Germany at Amelka Studios and starred two up and coming American film actresses. Virginia Valley uh, was cast as Patsy and Carmelita Garrity as Jill. And again, I apologize for pronunciations. Carmelita Garrity was a new actress at the time and apparently had been traveling through Europe with Virginia Valley, who somehow managed to get her the part of Jill, 
even though a popular German actress had already been cast, according to an essay I just read by Joseph Garn Kars this morning before we filmed. Wow, in a then, weird way that mirrors the, the action. Yes, she gets her friend this role in the movie and then, yeah, their characters do the same thing within the movie. Yeah, it, it's very strange. I, I had thought going in that these two were both super famous American actresses and apparently they were both kind of on the rise. Virginia Valley, a little bit more famous. Wow. The two male leads were British actors uh, who had a relationship with Hitchcock before The Pleasure Garden. Miles Mander, in particular, who plays Levitt, had worked on a movie called The Prude's Fall, which was directed by Graham Cutts. Alfred Hitchcock is credited as the co-writer, art director, and assistant director of that movie. And Miles Mander played a role in it as an actor. So they would have known each other from that. And that was only a year before The Pleasure Garden. In the book that I think we talked about, there were some kind of amusing anecdotes. Um, one is that uh, Hitchcock, well, first off, he got robbed of all of like a, a large sum of money that was supposed to be paying for uh, his room and other incidentals because um, he was flashing his cash in Italy and that he, got, he got robbed. And so he had to borrow money from the lead in order to, to stay at the hotel. Um, they, they, were, they tried to uh, hide so they didn't have to pay customs on the film. The studio wanted them to hide the film uh, from the, uh, uh, you know, somewhere, you know, so they, it wouldn't have to go through customs, but it got discovered. And so their all their film got confiscated. So when they got there, they had to basically get new film uh, imported in because it was, you know, had been confiscated. And so that, that caused a, a bit of a delay as well. So, oh, and another one, Hitchcock found out about, about um, menstruation during this period. Apparently as a 25 year old man, he did not know what it was, but uh, but a uh, the, the woman who we will discuss later, who was um, I guess the the one, the the native, native. On, the, on the plantation. Yeah, I guess she was uh, menstruating and uh, did not want to go into the water uh, for that one scene, which we will get to. And um, and and uh, and and so they were having a, they were conferring with other women. And, uh, and she went over to explain to Hitchcock, she doesn't want to go in. She doesn't want to do the scene because she's menstruating. And Hitchcock didn't know what that was. And he had to have menstruation explained to him. So different time. Yeah, and I find that, I, I feel like that story's suspect, uh, but I, I'm starting to wonder, because I read that similar story in the- in Right the here. No, that's- Right here. He tells Truffaut that story too. And I start to feel like maybe yeah. it's one of those stories he tells, like uh, the mythology of himself. Could be. Rather than what, what is the true. <laughs> Opening shot, blondes running down a spiral staircase, two of Hitchcock's favorite subjects right out the gate. Yeah, he was... He was like, as a young man, he must have just been in, in ecstasy, you know, filming that scene. And it yeah. is a beautiful scene. Yeah, the, the, the behind the scene, the different perspectives you get on the on the stage. So the Pleasure Garden is the, um, the theater where the, the action of the story begins. And um, there's, a, there's a nice montage at the beginning of just various perspectives, both from the audience point of view from the point of view of the performers on stage 
and the point of view of stagehands and people sort of behind the scenes, which, you know, talking about the early, the early film era, having a film turn the camera around on the audience, having a film uh, capture angles and perspectives that, you know, are unavailable to the audience. It's probably like a pretty interesting technical thing just to watch. Um, it's also yeah, that first, also that first tracking shot was, was impressive where the camera is just moving uh, to each of the, the, I guess the front row people. And it's, it's, you see sort of one person that to the cameras, you know, just slowly moving uh, from left to right. And you see uh, the audience members, you know, with very various, various uh, states of, you know, ecstasy, mostly men. Yeah, uh, leering, leering old men, smoking cigars, men. watching beautiful young women. Perform. And, they're, and they're bored wives, some of whom are sleeping. So, yeah, so we, we see Patsy, we see what a big star she is that gets established. And there's a little bit of a question about who the star of this movie is. Uh, which will come up later, but Jill, who's the aspiring star, like in the early part of the movie, you kind of feel like this is all just set up so that you can see what Jill wants, which Jill is a young woman who's just moved to London. Uh, she left her fiance, Hugh, back at home. So Jill goes, she gets this letter of recommendation stolen from her outside the, the theater as she's going to go and, and her money and all her money and, and, her money and every, every earthly possession that she's come with. And so she's kind of like, uh, she's a, she's out of luck. And um, she had a purse full of stuff though. I was trying to figure out what that stuff was. It was like, she'd put stuff, wrinkled stuff that looked like bills, but they weren't apparently. I don't know. But, or something or like, what is that crap that she's got? In her, like she dumps it out and the guy's like, nah, get, get out of here with your stuff. And, uh, and so then she's just kind of stuck in the lobby, uh, a young woman alone in London without any uh, money or a letter of introduction and without knowing anybody. So she's in a pretty desperate, desperate situation. And uh, Patsy comes to her rescue. These two guys are leering at her and they, and they come over and start talking to her. And, uh, and then Patsy kind of shoos them away and uh, says, yeah, you can, you can come stay with me uh, you know, for the night. So Patsy rescues Jill. Basically. I think it's a great setup for Jill because we immediately get her, give our sympathy to her, right? She's robbed. And then there are these two men, you know, you feel like they're going to sexually assault her or something. The ones uh, that Patsy doesn't come to the rescue. But after watching the movie and then thinking about it, I, you think if Patsy hadn't come, I think Jill would have been fine. She would have had those two men buying her dinner, putting her up in a hotel and just based on her personality. And, uh, you we know, learn later, you're right. Actually, I hadn't even thought of it. as we learn later, Jill definitely knows how to handle herself. When she leaves, she shoots the men a look. And I just couldn't help right. on the second viewing think of it. It's like a spider looking at two flies that just got away, just kind of like, see you later, guy. You know, like, uh, you know, I could have had you in the palm of my hand, but I'm going with Patsy instead. She's got to play a warm place. Yeah. One interesting question about this movie, and I, I'm pretty sure I know where you guys would fall, but it's, um, you know, the, the structure of it is a little odd because it's split almost down the middle and we shift from, Pat from Jill's point of view to Patsy's point of view, and it becomes Patsy's story by the end of the movie. Um, and a question is, uh, what was it a story, a mark of storytelling sophistication, or was it like a sort of directionless, um, you know, a lot of these films sort of, or early cinema, you know, the, the rules hadn't been written. So 
there are these sort of standalone scenes that are very dense and have a lot of action in them, but they, the, the bigger picture doesn't add up as much. So I think with Hitchcock, we can probably, you know, guess that he knew exactly what he was doing. Um, setting the well, story. He was, he was only 25 years old and it was, it was early days in, in cinema, as you, as you mentioned, and it, it's definitely, um, uh, you know, storytelling, obviously, that was certainly my impression based on this film was, was, you know, more primitive and it could have been, you know, and also, you know, maybe there is some nuance that got, you know, chopped out of this version or, um, or just in general, when it was first released, there is a sort of slight dislocation that takes place in my head watching this movie because Jill seems to be the subject of the film and then and also the heroine. Um, but then as it progresses, she becomes a kind of villain and Patsy becomes the, the heroine. I think subverting audience expectations is, is baked in with Hitchcock right from the beginning. You know, you think I mean, he obviously his most successful attempt at it was Psycho, where it's one movie for half the movie. And then it's a completely different movie for the latter half of the movie. I'd read that that's what he wanted the birds to be. He wanted the first half to be a slapstick comedy and then the last half to be a horror movie, but he was talked out of it. And this movie feels, The Pleasure Garden feels a little like the first half or maybe the first two thirds is like a, a rom-com. And then the last third is a, a, almost, it turns into a horror kind of suspense movie uh, where it goes. And it does flip your expectations totally because you enter a movie, usually you relate to the person who's new. So Jill's the new girl in town. She's showing up. She, so we kind of are the new people in this world. So we kind of relate to her instantly. So yeah, you expect her to be the main character. You, you know, something that just kind of crossed my mind um, and I haven't thought this one through, which will probably be clear once I start talking, but um the structure of the story is Jill, the, the neophyte, comes to the um, comes to the pleasure garden where Patsy, the sort of practiced hand to the 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 celebrity, um, who actually has a really good heart, ends up saving her, rescuing her, helping her, doing all that stuff. Um, it's the opposite of what happens with the the men in the story, which is that Hugh is the new guy in the, the plantation or the company that he's going out to work for in the, um, the, uh, the colony somewhere. And the, help me out with the, the other guy, the- um, Lester Levitt. Mr. Levitt. Levitt, Levitt the, 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 um, the established figure in that world is the corrupt one. So you have, you have Patsy, the sort of innocent established actress and Levitt, the corrupted, um, established businessman. Yeah, Hugh, point. Hugh, yeah, it's it's sort of it's just like a mirror of the dynamic that plays out between the two of them. Maybe that's something. Maybe it's not. But I I think it is kind of interesting because uh, the two worlds that you're exploring of theater and of like colonial uh, exploitation and and agriculture, it's like. Uh, they're 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 <laughs> they couldn't be more far apart you know there is a striking scene i remember a striking scene well when they get to her house we, we meet her parents and we meet cuddles the dog who plays actually an outsized role we, we haven't home. we haven't really settled it or did we settle this patsy is either a lodger with that couple 
or the, that's her, those are her parents. Yeah, yeah. I, I was, you know what, I started after watching, you know, after having gone through it a couple of times, I, my sense was that it was her, they never explicitly say it, but my sense is that it was her family. I mean, that, you know, she invites them to her wedding um, and, uh, and, and they give, and they do give her the life savings. So they don't, I, I think when I first saw it, I kind of thought that, yeah, she was lodging there, but, um, but I think it was her family. See, I, I got to go. I'm going to go the opposite way from you on this one, Lance, and just say that I think based on just that her name is listed as Patsy Brand and they're listed as the Sides, that I initially had thought they were her parents too, but I've kind of switched to uh, that she's a lodger because I looked up on Wikipedia boarding houses because I didn't know anything about them. And I, it's obviously we're coming up to a movie called The Lodger, so maybe a little background quick. In the 19th century, one half to one third of all urban dwellers rented a room to boarders or were boarders themselves. Boarders would share washing, breakfast and dining facilities and the proprietor would provide family style breakfast and evening dinners in the common room. The housing boom of the 1950s all but ended boarding houses. So, th so they have a different last name then because that would have been the right. obvious tip off. So yeah, it does sound like, I mean, so maybe I was right the first time I watched it that they were, um, you know, it's just, I guess they were just really close. And know? I feel like they're trying to, and we're going to talk about this later uh, with the generosity of the poor comes into play where, uh, you know, they end up giving her some money. But right. I think that Hitchcock's playing on that a little bit on wealth and on the different status that we're going to see from Mr. Hamilton's world versus the Sides, uh world. So Jill, when she gets there, uh, you know, when she meets Puddles and she meets the, the family, the, the, the boarders or the proprietors, I guess we were all agreed on now. Um, and then uh, they're getting undressed, which is also kind of a racy scene. I mean, there's a lot of you know, like young women undressing and, you know, uh, stockings being thrown around, which must have been pretty racy for the time. Um, but um, but she sits down and kneels next to the bed and prays and Patsy is looking at her and Jill. And so you get this sense of Jill as this pious country girl uh, who, uh, you know, is is kind of a, an innocent and naive waif in, in the big city um, and uh, and then lights out. Uh, but but of course, the, the, the roles change pretty quickly. That was Hitchcock showing a lot of sex appeal. I know it's a movie called The Pleasure Garden. Maybe those people are expecting that when they come in. But it's basically, you're getting plot, so it's the movie is being moved along. But you have Patsy and Jill basically disrobing simultaneously, and they're both throwing their clothes. Like, you're getting the cut. To, they're getting in bed together. It's Patsy's bedroom, and she's throwing her clothes onto Jill's trunk, which has just been brought into the room, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, and then they're getting into bed together. And there's, there's a, a number of shots of Jill where just from where the nudity would happen above, you know, and leaning down on taking off her stockings or whatever it is. So I think Hitchcock knows what he's doing here and they climb into bed together. And I'd read that someone asked him, was this, uh, you know, meant to suggest, um, you know, lesbianism in the uh, scene. And he coyly said something along the lines of him being sexually naive, which is why I also think the menstruation comment by him was probably I think he plays that angle, but I think he knows what he's doing when he's shooting these scenes. Maybe it's a combination of both. You know, I mean, I think a lot of the myth about Hitchcock was like they were they were based on real things about him, but just blown up to sort of cinematic proportion. Yeah. So it's it's, it's very possible he was sheltered. I mean, that I don't have a hard time believing that. I don't either. 
how well, how sheltered or or how much of that was a part of this is you know maybe up for debate. Definitely, but that that is an important scene of Jill praying at the bed because this comes up again later, and uh, and Patsy giving her that smirk like, uh, oh look at this quaint girl like saying her prayers, and Cuddles ruins the scene by licking her. Cuddles feet. licks her feet. Yes, but uh, Cuddles is a uh, is a moral compass in this film he definitely is like someone who has a penetrating insight into the the characters the the hearts of the characters sam i detect that you don't uh like that element uh what what tipped you off (laughs) just a hunch it's uh yeah it's a little bit ridiculous the way this dog um is used to sort of tell you who's good and who's bad it's kind of stuff like you get in a Disney movie. Here. I said beat it. You can't put that here. There's also an interesting note on the bed scene. Right after Jill says her prayers, uh, I noticed that she climbs into bed. And if you look at the bed, there's one oversized pillow and like a smaller one. And she pulls it over from Patsy and lays flat in the middle of it. And Patsy kind of looks at her and then just settles for a little edge of the pillow. So it's already an interesting sort of character set up for these two. Yeah, that's a good that's a good uh, thing to bring up is like this movie. These movies are very dense, you know, and a hundred years has done a lot for cinema. And I think when you when you watch these early movies, there's just like a, a a different approach to storytelling and it comes across in all these different ways. And one of the ways is that um, in these very short scenes, very, very kind of uh, visually interesting ways, little character development moments happen constantly. And I didn't even see that. So that, and that, that certainly would be a much bigger cue to to what would happen with her later. I I completely missed that. So good catch Kenny. Thank you. Mm. I've also noticed I wanted to comment on, you know, we've talked about Hitchcock uh, not liking to use a lot of title cards himself. Obviously, we don't know which title cards are his or if none of them are. But one trick he does use a lot throughout the film that I noticed is, which people like Wes Anderson do now, uh, which they don't need to really because it's not a silent movie. But he'll take information that the characters have in the movie, like the note that says uh, when the when it's time for the show. And then he'll show it to us. So we're reading a title card, but it's not a title card. It's information that they would have, the characters themselves would have. And he does it quite a few times in this movie. I just thought it was something to make note of. of it's a way he gets around using a card maybe. But uh, so now, yeah, we're up to Jill uh, getting the job. And I wanted to ask you guys about this because I think she gets the job based at the Pleasure Garden based on her confidence alone. Because I don't think she danced well in her audition. I think she just had a ton of confidence. I actually looked up videos on the Charleston to see if what she was doing was the Charleston. And it doesn't look like any of the videos I've seen. Maybe you guys can correct me or someone in the comments, but. It's I am not a dance expert, but it didn't look like she was really, like, I wasn't necessarily blown away by her performance where I was saying, that is an astonishing level of skill in that Charleston. <laughs> but I kind of just let that one kind of, like a lot of things, I think when I'm watching it, I'm kind of like, well, I get the idea here. The idea is that she's supposed to be knocking it out of the park. <laughs> so 
but yeah, it wasn't really like that. And, I, and then I'm also thinking maybe pejoratively, maybe this is like, we would kind of have this um, maybe contemptuous view sometimes of the past. And uh, I was like, well, that's as well as they could dance back then. They couldn't dance any better. So I don't know. That's a very interesting question, Kenny, but, but I, but I was not impressed with, with her dancing skills. So, but I just kind of like took it in stride. I'm also looking at a very crappy um, print, but yeah, she definitely was selling it with the, with the confidence and, uh, and chutzpah that she had, you know, she definitely, that's when you kind of see her really assertive uh, personality, you know, maybe aggressive personality coming out. Yeah, I put, I mean, you have to really admire her character for, for whatever negatives, like we might have to say about her later, like, you know, she demands four times what he's offering her That's uh, right. and she makes him shake hands with her in front of everybody. The confidence that she brings to getting the thing that she wants, which in this case is fame and money is uh, it, it's, it's really, it's something we could all take a note on, I think. Yeah, she, yeah, she's a model in this film of uh, upright behavior. And and she knows uh, the sex appeal she carries because right after she gets that job, there's a cut to her hugging Patsy. And then you see Mr. Hamilton leering at her with that look of, you know, he's interested in her. And she's looking back at him without blinking or without looking away with a smile. And you already know at this point she's engaged or has a fiance. Yes, enter Hugh along with Mr. Levitt uh, who comes to London to visit her uh, you know, presumably before he goes off for two years to the plantation um, to work. So he comes to visit her and brings Mr. Levitt in tow. And it's another subversion of our expectations, right? Because we get Hugh, who is your handsome, you know, typical like Hollywood kind of fella. And you would think this is going to be our main character for the movie. And he's, and he's quickly replaced with Levitt, who is this kind of not as handsome. He's got that mustache. He's a little skeezy looking. And, uh, you know, his first line of dialogue in the movie is basically propositioning Patsy for sex, you know, being like, it's lonely out there on those fields, you know, lady, like. We should get to, but also remember, so this is also a key part, part where Cuddles and his, uh, yes. the beloved Cuddles and his, uh, you know, supernatural ability to, to uh, ascertain character. Uh, Hugh comes to uh, the lodge where Jill and Patsy are and he's waiting, I guess, but he starts playing with Cuddles and Cuddles just loves him. Cuddles just loves him some Hugh. And they're playing on the floor and he's down on the floor. You know, they're fighting over something and uh, play fighting. And, uh, and that's when uh, Patsy comes out the door and, and trips over him in this adorable way. And they're lying on the floor and they're ha ha ha. And you see that, you know, it's obviously, it's just been set up for kind of like, you know, that there's, there's a like attraction there. And, um, they're kind of setting up the scene for, you know, maybe a future romance between. It's your prototypical rom-com, romantic comedy. It's just, you know, oh, it's, it's, she should probably be with him. You're already starting to think, you know, maybe he's shouldn't be with Jill because we're getting bad cues on Jill already. And maybe Patsy should be with him. And uh, yeah. Wow. How different this movie goes <laughs> yeah. uh, from here. Yeah. Yeah. So we have the scene laid out where we have these kind of romantic entanglements starting to happen. And we see Jill uh, definitely um, kind of moving up, you know, in, in the, you know, theater world. Uh, Hugh is obviously starting to seem like he's on the outs. Like she's, she's not really obviously thinking about Hugh anymore. And she's got all these uh, men courting her. And one of them is a prince, Prince Ivan. Um, but she's not necessarily all that, I mean, all that into Prince Ivan either. There's a very amusing scene where they go back, I guess, to her, 
her, uh, you know, I don't know, her boudoir or, or maybe Prince Ivan's, you know, place or whatever. It's obviously a beautiful, you know, well-appointed place. And um, and he's standing standing behind her, kind of leering, kind of lurking behind her. And he kind of puts his hands creepily on her shoulder. And she's got, she has a cigarette and a cigarette holder and she puts it in her mouth and she just tilts her head back to kind of block his, you know, kind so of cool. block his mouth from going in. And that was actually a kind of a funny Funny scene. She's like, yeah, not interested. Yeah, it was a little really. slapstick with that, but but she's definitely, um, you know, enjoying uh, toying with him, having a prince on 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 a leash. Yeah. Um, and uh, I I think it was interesting. Prince Ivan is the the sort of um, stand-in for continental uh, royal corruption is the wrong word, but aristocracy, which is on the wane. You know, this is after World War II. There's not much. No, it's it's pre. It's interwar. This is. This I mean, is exactly after World War I. After World War I, before World War II. So after the Russian Revolution. Well, Patsy knows? calls him a phony prince at one point later in the movie too. So I don't know, maybe he's just taking on the title. I, I know, I've, I've read a little bit about this. I don't, I'm no expert, but I know that like after the, the war, um, there were a lot of pretend um, Russian aristocrats sort of swarming all over Europe. Like the, the whole like, I'm a Romanov thing. Okay. That uh, that yeah. that uh, Matthew uh, Matthew Weiner is that his name? The Madman guy. Oh yeah, the Romanovs did that limited series. Uh, it was based on like a real a real thing that really happened, which is uh, people lying and pretending to be Russian aristocrats. Anyhow, um, yeah, it, I, I think I think what he stands for is more interesting than like the particularities, which is like continental Europe and royalty and uh stiff having having a having a royal personage in her grasp is significant for the story i i I feel like jill's path here the 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 parallel between hugh and levitt in the the on the plantation and jill with the pleasure garden the garden um, and the the royals and the the various you know flies in her spider web it's a it's a maybe it's not the strongest parallel but there's definitely something in my mind to to that um, and I can't really say what it is so I'm totally useless right now I think I, I around this point in the movie I kind of came up with my theorem on this movie which is that the pleasure garden is one of a number of things it's either love sex money or fame because those are the four things that almost every character in the movie is lusting after is like trying to get and they're pretty straightforward about it from levitt sex uh hugh love patsy's the only one who's kind of on the fence and uh, until i think she sees there's a quite actually levitt asks her straight up do you believe in love when she's looking at hugh with jill uh when they first meet and she doesn't really answer. And I think that's where it puts the idea in her head that that's what she's going to chase and starts to make her turn. But I wanted to bring up one character that uh, I like to, when we watch these movies, kind of we touch on the things that we're interested in, but there's also things that I will find questionable that I feel like should be addressed probably. And maybe I'm not the person to address it, but I, as since it's the three of us, I feel like I should try. Uh, so, and I did a little bit of quick research on this, so bear with me for one second. 
But so I want to talk about the Hitchcock trope that does not get as much attention as blondes and staircases, but apparently it is a trope. And it's when it occurs when uh, Hugh asks about Jill, we cut to Jill at Mr. Hamilton's apartment, which is already suggests something illicit because uh, she's supposed to be trying on the costume. And uh, so we, the idea for getting undressed at her boss's apartment is in our head. It open, we go to a shot of her in full wearing the costume posing. And then we pull back and we see Mr. Hamilton's lavish apartment. And in the foreground, not looking at Jill is Mr. Hamilton smoking a cigar, I believe on the couch. And next to him is a character who's not listed in the, in the cast list, who is a male character who is sitting on the couch with his legs tucked under him his arm around Mr. Hamilton, and he has long shoulder length hair. Oh uh, yeah, the, the costume designer. Yeah. Costume designer. So yeah, quite obviously, quite stereotypically gay. Right. right. Yeah. So uh, that kind of led me down a little quick rabbit hole of, and starting with Wikipedia, where I looked up something called queer or gay coding. And this is what I got from Wikipedia really quick. Uh, queer or gay coding is the subtextual coding of a character as queer though such a character's sexual identity may not be explicitly confirmed within the respective work, a character might be quoted, coded as queer through the use of traits and stereotypes recognizable to the audience. Such traits are varied, but traits of exaggerated masculinity, femininity, vanity, and hypersexuality are frequent. And that led me to an article called, again, because I'm not an expert in these topics, called Gay Coding in Hitchcock Films by Scott Badman and Connie Russell Hozier on the Mensa website. So you know these people are experts. Uh, where they point out how Hitchcock used this coding in more famous, some of his more famous movies, they don't mention The Pleasure Garden particularly, but they say this, which I thought was interesting. Hitchcock intentionally used the stereotypes and misinformation of his era when they helped him manipulate the audience's reaction, sometimes in highlighting the villainy of his villains. Society today is, in general, more accepting of LGBTQ people, making it hard to comprehend how toxic the societal attitudes were in Hitchcock's time. His gay coding undoubtedly reinforced those toxic attitudes among straight audiences sometimes. However, Hitchcock's thorough and thoughtful development of so many gay characters reveal his humanity and acceptance of homosexuality. Now that character does come back later in the film and I wanna to touch on that scene when we get to it. Uh, he has a very interesting kind of character arc that mirrors Jill's. And it just made me realize that a lot of these characters have very Shakespearean motives. They're very driven in one particular way. And uh, kind of shifted my views of the movie a little bit in you know, where you kind of start to see Patsy is the main hero that we should be following. But there's, the thing that's interesting is that there's all these views presented, but no characters judge the other characters until Patsy judges Levitt at the end. So you're basically shown these ways. You see Jill climbing, but no one ever says directly to Jill's face, you know, you're doing something horrible or you're a horrible person. No one criticizes her. So it's left to the viewer, us, to make these decisions like, oh, Jill is a bad person because she didn't help her friend or the societies are good people. Well, she dumped, she dumped the nice guy, Hugh, uh, and now she's... Uh, but from Jill's perspective, you know, she, her, she doesn't care about love. She cares about fame and fortune. So, you know, Hugh couldn't provide that. So you can't really 
she never, we never are given an inkling that she cared about love. So maybe Hugh was, the, his weakness was that his oblivious to what was in front of him because of his obsession with love. So there's always a weakness. So Jill's weakness would be her, her lack of empathy towards the people around her because she's so focused on herself. It's kind of the way I see it. Patsy being yeah. like one empty vessel kind of could go either way. But get back to the, to the character arc of the, because the, the gay character for me was um, just sort of like, I, I don't, I just remember it as being sort of played for laughs. I mean, I felt like that, like he was, has this very foppish hairstyle and wardrobe and, uh, you know, and, and very exaggerated gestures. But what do you mean by he, his character? Arc? Well, all right. His last scene uh, in the movie, he, we, the last time we see him is actually also the last time we see Jill in the movie. And it's after Patsy goes to ask for money uh, to go visit Mr. Levitt, which we'll, we'll get to all that. But he, uh, so she goes to ask for money and she says, I can't, I'm spending the money too much on my trousseau, which I had to look that word up. It means her, her clothing, basically. Her wedding linens and all that kind of yeah. stuff. So we see Patsy leaving and as she's leaving, we see Jill at the table and the clothing designer smiling very widely, tapping his fingers as she counts out all this money. And you realize he's doing the same thing Jill is doing. He is using his abilities and he's the only character in the movie who gets one over on Jill at all. And it's because Jill's strengths, her sexuality have no power on this guy. So he is able to basically bilk her on, you know, she clearly doesn't know what she's doling this money out for. He's got all these receipts and papers. Well, wait, well all that back up. I mean, I'm, I'm not disputing your thesis. I think this is a really interesting point. I completely miss that he's bilking her. I mean, she's buying clothes because she wants clothes. Yeah, I mean, that, he's providing that was, like, but the that, price is set by him the same way that she would decide at the beginning when Mr. Hamilton says, I'll pay you whatever, five dollars, and she ups it to 20. Okay, he is in charge in this situation. So, you just, is, is, the, is the implication that he's cheating her, or is she just getting watch the scene again? And I'll put it up on the screen here. But he is smiling while she's tapping it, and he's like doing one of these things while she's. Yeah taking money and she's clearly like oh is this the yeah, he's, he's got this kind of like hey you know yeah like the classical oh yes you know right okay. yeah definitely a, a, I, I do remember that and i and i i mean i interpreted that scene i didn't i wasn't really so much paying attention to him it was more just um how she denied her friend any assistance where right. in the very next breath she's able to just shovel all this money over for you know her wardrobe and clothing or whatever and that's yeah, how I interpret it, but yeah, yeah. It, the the import of that seemed seemed to me more to be that you know, Patsy, who had selflessly given to Jill earlier in the story, now there's like a reversal, and Jill is in a position to help Patsy, and she doesn't, and she doesn't because she has her own selfish desires, which supersede the and the the honest you know solid middle class couple that she's lodging with are their character is totally different and you're right like the 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 background and the characters of you know the the dressmaker are probably um given their own kind of um i don't want to say arc but they're they you know he he definitely represents the the negatives of the the world the the glamorous theater world that that is like, decadence 
Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that's that. In in contrast to the the you know the more Loving honest sort of land honest. the landlords who are the really the heroes of this story. Right. Um, which that, is kind uh, of it. yeah, it's kind of it. class values. So yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 the it's it's the well, very traditional values that that are kind of you know per, that that win the day, I guess, in a sense. Although although it seems like Jill does just fine. You know, these people that were these people that were calling like you know honest middle class whatever people. It's important to keep in mind are the landlords to Patsy. They're not like you know they're selfless and they they care about her and they treat her like a like a daughter, but they're um they're essentially they're landowners who are you know, charging her rent to live in their house. Which okay. I don't know. If they will be killed in the revolution. Well, no. <laughs> Although that was definitely in the air. Right. That, that was in, that was that was not a that was a. <laughs> but it's just I don't know. Maybe it's worth remarking on that that that's the dynamic at play. All right. So I want to jump back, jump forward in the movie, keep this going to uh, to the. She asks uh, Levitt asks Patsy to marry him before they go on this honeymoon. And one other blink and you'll miss it scene that I picked up on that I want to bring up to you guys is in the very same scene where Levitt asks Patsy, uh, do you believe in love? We see, again, total blink and you'll miss it, but I think it's fantastic. You see Levitt, she doesn't answer and it just shows Levitt and he has a flower on his lapel when he first enters the first time we see him. And right after she doesn't say anything, he takes the flower off and puts it on the table. And you would just think, okay, whatever. But later on, knowing what happens after Patsy gives him a flower and he throws it away, you can't help but see it any other way, except some other girl not in the movie before this gave Levitt this flower. And he basically, him throwing it, tossing it, was basically him being like, I'm into Patsy now. Like this guy is one after the other, basically yeah. just chasing the women. And his drive just to get sex, leading up to this scene of the proposal for marriage from Patsy, is I think it's just really great how it's kind of baked in. That's a great observation, and I think like that this is just bears repeating that this is a really movie is dense with information, and there's not really a moment wasted. Every everything you see on screen is in service to the story in some way or another, and all these little character moments are they add up to something, and they they give you insight into care, or they they kind of like um, give you a little uh, foreshadowing of character sometimes it's he heavy-handed and sometimes it's more subtle like what you just said with the uh so, it's, so an example of the heavy-handed is when they go on um uh, on honeymoon right to yeah. uh, to italy um and they have this you know idyllic honeymoon it does appear i mean there are there are shades you know and he does an interesting job i think of sort of conveying these moments of of um, I guess doubt or moments where you start to see Levitt, uh, you know, in, in a different light, you know, or you may, you're probably all, we've already had plenty of clues, right? But but he's definitely more and more coming into his kind of caddish and and insensitive and, and kind of selfish self. But but the very heavy-handed is is near the end um, where uh, children are are coming up and you know talking to her and I guess asking for money is like don't let those urchins get one over on you. The spoiled brats, you know, and so he's basically saying, you know, just dis completely dismissive, whereas, you know, she's compassionate enough to where she's sort of talking to the local people and the local children, whereas he's just like, you know, dismissive of them. 
And then he, in the flower that he has in his lapel at this time, uh, he removes it from the lapel and, and basically chucks it in the canal, right? And she's mm -hmm. like, you threw away the flower I gave you. And I was like, well, I had to, it was wilted. And that, that's about as obvious a metaphor as you could get. It's also, he's basically saying, uh, you know, the, the flower is off, the, the, the bloom is off the rose now. I don't really, uh, the, what's communicated there is he's kind of already moved on. He, he's like had this, you know, this fun honeymoon with her. And now he's ready to get back to, um, you know, what we discover is his other life Mistress. You know, on the plantation. It's an interesting, the honeymoon scene is an interesting twist for both of the characters. Because on one hand, yes, you get Levitz. He's had sex with Patsy. We'd seen him in the bed on the honeymoon scene together. And then on the other hand, uh, Patsy, and this was something else I'd missed on the first thing, is we see her praying uh, at saying, uh, what does she say? She says, I asked God to grant us a happy life together. And then remembering her smirking at Jill at the beginning of the movie, praying at the bed and how completely the two characters have now taken each other's spot, basically. You have, except Patsy, you actually believe, believes it, right? At yeah. this point. And it's right after she tells Levitt that where he really starts to go downhill in terms of- uh, well, This is one of those things where like, I know we're probably, I don't know what quite what to make it was like, like, I think in the back of my mind, again, watching these things, I'm thinking it's crude storytelling, but maybe I, maybe it's more sophisticated than I'm giving you credit for. Um, but it definitely seems, you know, I was like, well, first Patsy was this and now she's not this. And it's, I feel like a, a lot of backstory has just not been presented. A lot of information hasn't been presented to me. I still kind of feel that way, but, but, um, talking about the honeymoon and uh levitt and patsy and levitt's gonna go off to the to work and he can't take his young bride with him which we know is definitely not true this is uh the one shot i want to remark on because i haven't so far called out any of the interesting camera work in this movie which there's a lot of i mean it's beautifully shot and one great thing about hitchcock from the beginning seems to be his visual imagination but um, in this one shot, we see uh, we see Patsy waving um, to see her husband off at the at the ship as he's going off to this unnamed colony to work on the plantation. And then in a match cut, we get the waving of another woman, not his wife, um, greeting him as he arrives. So he's got this wife too the secret family yeah or secret wife in anyway in um in the unnamed colony it could be the middle east it could be um africa it could be it's just sort of this like colony it's it stands for all colonies it, it all does it, it does and like it's such a weird and, I, and of course they're using german actors too right so nobody really looks uh you know so you can't really put an ethnic necessarily there's just sort of like this generic um, yeah it, to me it looks like it was supposed to be north african yeah yeah that's yeah right. morocco kind of vibe yeah yeah but um but it's hard to say um but uh but anyhow that it was a beautiful shot Morocco wouldn't be an english colony sorry but yeah, yeah. but you know that that general that general area it could be iraq i mean it could be right could be, um so anyway yeah he's uh He's greeted by this um, 
beautiful young woman who um, is his, uh, I guess uh, he's got, oh God, I'm not going to say it. Never mind. I, I just wrote her down as a mistress. I mean, he's married mistress, now, yeah. so technically. I was going to say he's got hoes in different area codes, but don't, don't <laughs> cut that out. Cut that out. <laughs> so uh, yeah, this, this fraught relationship that he's got in the, uh, the colonies is uh, plays out kind of um, in a, in a macabre fashion. And this is where the movie, as Kenny pointed out earlier, goes from feeling like a romantic comedy to feeling more like a, a murder mystery or not a murder mystery, but a, like a tale of suspense and horror. Yeah. It gets sinister real quick. It gets dark because, because, well, I mean, it's obvious that when we get there and, and Hugh is there too, right? So we know Hugh is there, but he's, and first thing Hugh does when, when um, uh, Mr. Levitt gets there is ask about Jill. Yeah. And Jill's like, oh, well, and, and Mr. Levitt is like, oh, you know, kind of dismisses him. He's like, oh, well, I'll tell you the truth. I didn't really see her that much. Mm -hmm. um, and the woman is there. And, uh, in, and so he's all ready to just kind of settle into his new life. And he very quickly kind of just becomes a complete degenerate, you know, like he's just, you know, uh, drinking his days away. I don't know what his job was there because it didn't seem like he was really doing anything other than just, uh, you know, drinking and carousing with his mistress. Classic management behavior. Yeah. Yeah. This actor, Miles Mander, he really sinks his teeth into this last part of the movie. Yeah. I absolutely love him here. It reminds me of like a Ray Fiennes kind of where he's got this seedy element to him, but he's still like of a handsome guy, even though he's all strung out and then dirty clothes by the end of this. Uh, he's, he's all emaciated. He looks just- He's growing you know, a beard. He's staggering around in, in a way like he, he's, he's unnerving. He's definitely unnerving in his, and he seems dangerous. If you follow yeah. the whole pleasure garden, kind of like my, my rationale from earlier, which is that you, you get to, uh, through with love, sex, money, he's kind of at, this is his pleasure garden essentially because he has everything. He has the alcohol, he has a woman who's waiting on him hand and foot. Uh, and everything is immediately available to him at, at this location that he's he's at now, and it's it's disturbing, really. That's an interesting. Really. It is it is, yeah. It's kind of like it's it's no sort of pleasure garden I'd want to live in, but it seems you know it's what it's it is kind of his. Uh, the, it's the um, it's the pleasure garden of his making, right? I mean, he's clearly uh, feels at home there, uh, and even though he's falling apart, you know. It's certainly mentally, um, he's a wreck. Yeah, and I think maybe this might be reading too much into it, but he could symbolize the 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 Englishman abroad. You know, he he kind of stands for like the corrupting influence of this like this colonial mischief that a lot of these uh, administrators were subject to. You know, they'd go to places like this. And they'd live in these very um, excessive, these excessive lifestyles um, and exploiting the people around them. And um, I think there was an awareness of, of the, the corrupting influence. And I think, I think he's, a, he's more, it's more than just like a, I, I think there's a very deliberate point being made with his character. Yeah, him showing up in a white suit on the, on the white horse, essentially. The whole, the whole sort of village kind of turning out while he shows up, clearly a man of, uh, of power and influence. And, um, and what does he do with it? Nothing good. Yeah, it, no, it, it, it corrupts him. I and mean, he seems honestly pretty miserable. And, and Hugh, who's like the, the newcomer in this world, 
hasn't yet succumbed to that that corrupting influence of uh, right. power. But the, the implication is that maybe given enough time, he could find himself in a similar state of uh, torpor. Right, and then meanwhile, we should probably point out too that, that meanwhile, um, uh, Patsy is waiting for a letter. Uh, She's been writing nonstop, just writing yeah, these- Just waiting, waiting, waiting to get a letter from him. Finally, yeah. months or whatever have passed and he sends her a letter and says, uh, sorry, I didn't write, I'm, I'm like ill. Yeah, he lied. So Hugh is actually sick with, um, you know, malaria or whatever, whatever he contracted. And um, and Levitt is definitely only sick with the drink, but he's he's used his his friend's illness as cover to um, lie to his wife. And when she hears this, her reaction is immediate. She's got to go be by his side. I must backfire. I think he thinks she won't want to come. Yeah, she he he doesn't anticipate how virtuous you know she is, and uh, you know she immediately you know that she that's when she goes to um, uh, her friend Jill and tries to get money for passage so that she can go and and take care of Levitt, um, and and that's when Jill you know basically tells her to get stuffed and uh, you know because she's got to save for her um, what is what's that word. <laughs> Her trousseau. Her trousseau, right. Her expensive trousseau. Um, yeah. So yes. Patsy ends up going to the Sides. So this is where I think it's an interesting question, like just for us as viewers, maybe it doesn't have an answer, but it's this, what I call the self-sacrifice of the poor. Like, is this supposed, are we supposed to view this as a good thing? Are we meant to understand that through the Sides sacrificing their savings to help her, that that makes them good people. They're presented as generous and as sort of like, the good people, but they're also presented as clumsy, obsessed with technology to the point of it almost looks like laziness, like he's on the radio and he's just like a joke. And in some ways they're presented as simple. So it's almost like the simple characters will give away their things, whereas the smart characters like Jill are going to just focus and get what, what is due to them. Right, so the, 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 the common man is gonna get played, right? I mean. The, the common men and women of the air, even though they're doing what they're doing is out of decency and self-sacrifice, um, uh, and and in a sense of you know they, they, it doesn't even occur to them that that you know he might be lying or that um, you know that that the first thing they do is is give Patsy, who's not even their daughter, apparently um, you know their what what amounts to their you know I guess their life savings or certainly you know money they have been tucking away up. And he risks his life to, to climb up there, <laughs> like, which really was unsettling to me. I don't know about you guys, but like watching him <laughs> climb up, the, you know, and, and yeah. she's holding him. I mean, this was in the days before, uh, you know, you know, unions and OSHA, obviously. And I was like, and it's like a China cabinet. So you think <laughs> right. the whole thing falling forward. Right. There's you know. a, there's a slapstick quality to this scene that I think is, uh, yeah. Like you, you expect it to be, to play out differently, maybe. Um, but it's it's worth noting how many tonal shifts happen in this movie because you know you can go from melodrama to um, to slapstick on a dime um, you know for, for romantic comedy and everything. So but, let's wrap up this story. Yeah, let's wrap. Yeah, up. let's go. Let's just finish this home stretch. Um, so Patsy arrives. Uh, she gets the money from the Sides. She shows up and finds Levitt in the arms of his mistress. I like how Levitt plays this scene because he seems confused when she shows up. He's clearly trashed. His hair is all messed up. Uh, on one hand, he tries to throw the mistress out. 
And then immediately after that, he's pinning her against a wall. Like he's going to just ravish her right there in the room. It's, it's almost like he's Weird. confused on what he wants. He has everything. He's got the two women here, but he knows he's in trouble. He doesn't want to be in trouble. But of course, Patsy rejects him. And it's in the one scene where someone, where I noted, where someone's called out for their behavior, but she calls him a filthy animal. The, the German title for this movie was originally going to be a, uh, it was like the lust garden and whatever it is in German, but they thought it was too racy. But I feel like that's a more just term for this movie since it's people really lusting after something that's driving them all. So yeah, so she finds him in there and he, she leaves. She basically leaves. Right. And then, um, and that's where we also are to do is like someone who, it doesn't seem like he's explicitly, his role is explicitly, um, called out in the movie. I don't know if you guys noticed that, but but when I was reading the, the Hitchcock book, uh, the, the synopsis there is they call him a doctor, like he's a local doctor. So I guess that's why he was visiting um, uh, Hugh, who okay. we discover is there and is ill uh, in that scene. And so so what he says is, okay, well, you, so she goes back to the doctor and apparently she's going to go back to the, you know, whatever the docks to get a boat back to and sail back to England, but um, but he's like, well, you can um, maybe you can help me, you know, take care of his friend uh, who's sick uh, while you wait for the boat, you know, to arrive, the ship to arrive, the next ship. So, so that's when he takes her to Hugh, who we find like under a mosquito net outside, you know, delirious, feverish, you know, and uh, and so they have this this weird kind of reunion. Um, I mean, I don't know if I'd call it weird, but. It's, he doesn't actually, he, I think he calls her Jill. Like he thinks she's yeah. Jill. He, he's in such a delirium. He doesn't know who she is. Right. Yeah. Um, but, she, but she helps nurse him back to health. And, um, you know, somewhat predictably, they end up falling in love. Yeah. yeah. And then, and then uh, what's, and then uh, Levitt gets jealous and he comes over wearing this. I don't know if anybody else noticed how weird that shirt is. It looks like a, like he's wearing a fishnet shirt. Yeah, yeah, it is. It, it's really. I don't, I don't know what what is up with that shirt, but he's wearing like this weird fishnet shirt, and he comes staggering over, and uh, he's like, "That's my woman," and they, and and uh, and he pushes him down, and of course, Hugh is too weak to fight. Uh, well, he you actually hold on, we missed a really important part. He kills oh. the the mistress. Oh, that's yeah. right. So the mistress who's distraught. I'm sorry. Yeah, you're right. The mistress who's distraught goes out into the ocean. And so Levitt calls after her and she's like, oh, good. You know, obviously this was a stand-in because she didn't really go in the ocean and we know why. Because of menstruation. But, uh, um, but, uh, but so, she, so she turns around and she's like excited that, um, that, that Levitt is calling to her. And so he swims out to her, but instead of, you know, them embracing, he just drowns her. And this rather macabre, you know, scene where he basically just, you know, he holds her underwater and she drowns. And, uh, and then he goes um, and tries to take his wife uh, back from uh, from from Hugh, I guess. In, in the most lamest, I, I, I do like the lame fight between the ineffectual hero who is sick with fever in the bed and the scrawny Levitt, who now he's got the fishnet shirt. He looks like he's soaked because he's been in the water. He's so skinny, like skin and bones. And he's like shaking his fists at it. I'm going to bash in Hugh's head. It's not a very well choreographed uh, fight scene, <laughs> but yeah, but, you know, it is almost comical. Well, it's not even almost, it's definitely comical by I think today's standards, but yeah, he winds up dragging uh, uh, her. Well, no, he doesn't drag her back. She basically says, 
you know, I, so, so she shows an interesting degree of autonomy and strength here too, you know, especially maybe for of that era, but she's, she basically says, I'm going to go with him. I'm going to go with Levitt because he's crazy and, and he's liable to hurt us. That, I think that was the gist. I, I don't remember exactly what she said. So she, of her own volition says, okay, I'm going back with you and I'll, and then I'll come back to you, you know, once he's kind of calmed down. Mm. So then they go back to Levitt's, you know, filthy hovel. Yeah. One, the only other scene, I love this whole end scene uh, a lot, but the only other, the stop and you'll miss it scene I want to point out, and this is my last one, I promise. Is, and I could be wrong on this one, that's one thing, is right before Levitt goes to retrieve uh, Patsy, and right after he's murdered the girl, we see Levitt back in the hut for a second, and he's sitting in his chair in a delirium. And he looks to the table to his left and there's a bottle of uh, whiskey or whatever the heck he's been drinking on it. And I could be wrong, but I think what's spread out on the table is a handful of wilted flowers, which again, that theme comes up of he's looking at all of his failures or his, the things he wanted. And now where he's at, he's a murderer. His wife is leaving him. I, I, they could be crumpled up pieces of white paper. It's hard because they clearly did not watch this movie as carefully as you. Yeah, I know. I well, it's, it's like, I caught it, and I'm like, is that flowers? You know, it was one of those aha, brilliant moments. Like, wait a minute, like that's so cool. If that's what that is, because he's at this complete nadir now, where he's facing all of his failures. That is. But yeah, so we get to the Patsy and Levitt in the uh, their final showdown. And he's, he's, he begins to see the ghost of uh, the native girl who he killed. And he's obviously hallucinating and freaking out. And, um, and she's tormenting him. The ghost is tormenting him. Nice kind of double exposure, you know, primitive ghost effect, but, yeah. you know, ser serviceable. Must have been really cool at the time. Um, she's very creepy in this scene, too. The, the she, is, she is creepy, you're right. And, and he's creepy. And it's definitely, there is a, there, and, and there's this sword on, on the wall. Uh, that he takes down, um, you know, so there's a, you know, a weapon convenient to him and he pulls it down and he starts uh, basically he's, he's taking it that, that she won't rest. The, the ghost of his lover won't rest until he kills uh, Patsy. And so he's, he decides he's going to kill Patsy and Patsy runs into a, um, a different room and closes the door, but the door is, um, like this lattice work. So you can see him outside the door and he's jabbing the sword through the lattice at her. And then he pulls the door open. And, uh, and then at the last possible moment, right as she's about to be stabbed, um, uh, there's a gunshot and uh, you see Levitt turn around and kind of stagger around. And he's just kind of confused as to, you know, what has happened and he looks down and he's bleeding. And you see the doctor standing there with a the gun in his hand he's yeah it's a kind of a nice over the shoulder shot of the doctor like it feels like a i couldn't make out what levitt said too but it looked whatever he says in that scene looked very casual like sort of like oh like hey like it was very like he, did, he wasn't screaming he wasn't mad like he looked like he the fever had broken and he was calmed down it was played really well yeah yeah bullet hole you know, you, you're watching it and you think, well, oh, they're not going to show the special effects. And then it's this great shot where he just pulls the shirt over and you see the, the blood there. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's, he's, uh, you know, hats off to him. He's kind of like, like his character was not that interesting until, no. 
until this scene. And that's when he really, you know, let it rip. You know, he really, I guess, really seemed to relish playing that character. I can see why. And he's, he's, you know, when you're playing a lot of buttoned up, you know, English characters and suddenly you can just kind of be a raging lunatic wearing a fishnet shirt. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, it was, it was uh, you know. His, his acting style felt very modern to me. Sort of like, you know, if you cast Jared Leto in that role, that's the way he would do it. He'd be drunk on set. You know, the, the method acting is strong there. It was, it was, it was, I really liked it. Um, so yeah, the movie ends with, uh, I guess, basically happy ending. Uh, I, I think one other subversion is that when he shot, in, my first thought is, oh, well, Hugh has mustered the strength to come and rescue uh, Patsy. And again, it's subverted and it's just the random doctor you'd seen earlier uh, yeah. stepping and, in. And Hugh is still in a weakened state still needs the sort of help of Patsy to, to get through. He's sort of like a sickly guy at this point. And in another scene of ridiculous, again, I, I don't know where this plantation is particularly, but they're carrying him on a bed, like a little Sultan to the, yeah. to see them. And then he gets up and he's fine. He's standing and he's hugging, embracing Patsy. Uh, so I guess happy ending. Yeah, they got married. Um, they go back to Puddles. Cuddles is psyched to see him. All right, the the story concludes with Cuddles um, sort of tying all those threads together. And Cuddles tying all the threads together and also chewing the uh, the radio headset uh, that you know of, of the generous uh, hero, Mister mm -hmm. Sidey. Yes, that we should all it's, we should all try to be more like Mister Sidey. We definitely should. Maybe a Sam, I detected better. you didn't like the cuddles ending. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no, your detection is correct. Yeah, it, was, it is pretty uh, stupid. <laughs> I mean, you know, right. it's, it's not a it's not a perfect movie. There are a lot of great things about it, but um, but the stuff with the dog is probably my least favorite part of it. It just feels really silly. All right, guys, let's wrap this thing up. Boy, let's get let's do the MacGuffins. You guys ready? Yeah. Yes, let's do some MacGuffins. Let's get some MacGuffins going. Uh, Sam. MacGuffins up here. Yeah, uh, as far as rating this movie, I'd give it a solid two. You know, it's, it's got a great visuals. It's an uh, interesting story in many ways. It's got some uh, standout acting from a few of the from a few actors. Um, the guy who plays Levitt, as we mentioned, uh, or as Kenny mentioned, was, uh, was pretty particularly good in, at points. Um, it's just an interesting movie to look at. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I two out of five is pretty, pretty good score for a movie from this time period. Um, you know, I obviously in the context of when it was made, it was probably more, um, dramatically rewarding to watch. I don't know if your modern expectations can be completely put aside. Um, watching a movie from the 20s but um, I'd, I would say I, I, there's a lot to like about this movie it was far from perfect but um, for inventive visuals for uh, sort of interesting thematic elements for uh, occasionally good acting I'd, I'd give it a solid two Okay, my MacGuffin review is uh, having watched this film multiple times now, I actually like it better than the first time that I watched it. Uh, I'm looking forward to the BFI version to see what was left out, 
However, they said it was like a half an hour longer. So uh, ideally parts that connect these stories a little bit tighter. Uh, to me, the movie was about ogling things and desiring things. There's voyeurisms on display. We, the viewers are invited in, in some really original ways uh, through some fancy shots Hitchcock uses. Uh, I mentioned earlier, the original title in German was meant to be Der Garden der Lust, uh, or I guess the Lust Garden, if that's the proper translation. But you, we get to see the world through the, all these different points of views. We get to lust at the women through the eyes of the audience on screen. We get to appreciate the climb of fame and money that Jill goes on. Uh, Patsy is the holdout. She isn't particularly lusting for anything until Hugh arrives in love with Jill and she realizes that's what she wants. Oh, the movie's main conflict does seem to be in deciding what's the best way to live your life. In the end, it seems like Patsy's version prevails where a man and woman fall in love and end up happily ever after. But we don't ever actually see Jill or the costume designer again after a certain point in the film. And we're not given any reason to think that they're unhappy or worse off uh, than for their self-indulging chase of money and fame. You, I, I would imagine they're doing just fine and probably very happy. The only version of How to Live Your Life that completely falls apart is the one that only Levitt holds, which is the one of immediate gratification, which is kind of ironic because in the modern era, to me, that's the way most of us live. We have the internet, we can get everything we want immediately. We can just feed our desires very quickly. And it, it's, for whatever reason, uh, anything we want at the moment's notice, uh, we're only limited by our ability to want things. So Levitt wants alcohol, sex, and by the end, escape. He's up front in asking for these things. The first time we see him, he's asking Patsy essentially for sex. His island girlfriend knows to, not, or his plantation girlfriend, she knows just to bring him those things. Uh, he only cared about what was in front of him and had no desire to chase anything else. We celebrate his death at the end of it, but I'm not sure if we should or not. Uh, if we were more like Jill or the costume designer, maybe we'd be happier and more satisfied in our lives. If we were more like Patsy and Hugh, uh, we'd be happy, but poor is what I kind of took away from that. So what is the real pleasure garden in the movie? That's something that, again, the first time I watched it, I didn't come away with anything super deep and watching it multiple times. I don't know if I'm just falling down a rabbit hole of uh, metaphors and, uh, you know, thoughts but my anyway i'm going to give this movie three out of five mcguffins i really which again the first time i watched it, i probably would have given it 1.5 and said i hope for the second the bfi version will fix it a little better i like it a lot more now i give it three out of five i think it's a great movie it's short so it's an easy entry to the silent era and it's pretty easy to follow in a sense story-wise there's not you can't really get too lost in it. Uh, and that's my review. Okay, obviously you thought a lot more deeply about it than I did and examined it thematically, thematically to a much greater degree than I did, but, um, okay. and you make some very interesting points and that actually kind of makes me like the movie better in sort of examining it from the framework of the, um, the, I guess the thematic framework of the pleasure garden, what it 
what that means to the different characters. Um, I hadn't really thought too deeply on that, to be perfectly honest. But um, I, my view on it, however, just after, you know, this is the first silent movie I've watched in a long time. So uh, it's, it's um, I, I feel like I, I want to grade it on a curve, or, or I also feel like I'm, I'm trying to put myself in the mind of an audience member. And then on top of that, there's also this extra complication of it not necessarily being, or in fact, you know, almost definitely not being the, the version that was shown originally that, you know, in theaters uh, at the time, right? So we're looking at a highly, uh, you know, edited version. Um, but with that said, uh, since that's all I have to go on, I mean, I, I give it two. Um, I, I just, th there were, you definitely get the sense that this is a, a young filmmaker and in a young medium, right? So it's it's still very early days. Uh, it's, it's, it feels a little clumsy at times. The story feels, uh, for me, the story, you know, although there are some interesting tangents, some definitely some interesting tangents, maybe I should give it a 2.5. I'm going to do that. I'm going to up my MacGuffin from my original <laughs> to 2.5 because there definitely are some interesting uh, you know, threads in that story. And there's a lot of uh, visual metaphors that are interesting. Um, but it's also at times seems a little clumsy and it seems a little boilerplate too at the end where, you know, they they have this kind of uh, absurd uh, reunion. The, the ending is just just saccharine, you know, sweet where they all have this re reunion back in Patsy's, um, you know, apartment. And uh, the dog is there and, uh, you know, is oh, super excited to see both of them. And then, you know, the nutty, uh, you know, dog chews through the stereo wires. And it's just, it, all that part is just so schlocky. And I, I mean, again, that's like a, that's like a Hollywood ending, right? In so many, so many films, but it still is kind of feels lazy and kind of tacked on. Um, there were, I, you know, the last part of the movie was also so weirdly different from, you know, the beginning and the middle of the movie it, like you say it almost feels like two different movies and i don't know if that's intentional or not it doesn't I, my my sense is that it wasn't um and if it was then you know maybe again maybe there's something that i missed in the edits that would have clarified that or made it seem a little more obvious but in my view it just kind of seems a little clunky so two and a half stars you know there's there's some inventive storytelling there's some interesting um uh shot camera work um some some cool uh you know symbolism some maybe a little more heavy-handed than i would like but yeah two and a half okay. all right yeah. all right everyone uh thank you for watching uh this episode our first episode sorry i ran a little bit long uh we're going to be apologizing probably for all of them for running a little bit long your assignment for episode two should you choose to take it is to actually, you don't have an assignment. You can just actually wait till next week because we are going to be reviewing Hitchcock's second movie, the mountain Eagle, which is lost and nobody has. So take a week off, uh, tr go by the lodger on criterion, uh, so that you're ready for episode three. We'll fill you in on the mountain Eagle next week. We will show you every frame that we can find from that movie and we will give you our hypothesis on what we think the movie was about and uh thanks for joining us we'll see y'all next week
phrase i use is moronic logic.